0: Shortly before the First World War, Henry Miller, an aspiring young writer, made an arrangement with his friend, a man called Bill Diker. The world, they had noticed, was obsessed with Hamlet. But why, they wondered. Henry Miller, recalling these events 20 years later, wrote, What is Hamlet's supposed value to the world? The reasons for its obsessive recurrence. Hamlet, Hamlet, he wrote, Why Hamlet always? It's a really good question. Thousands and thousands of the brightest minds of the past 400 years, not least generations of students, have had a go at answering it. Unfortunately, though, Henry and Bill didn't get very far. As Miller tells the story, their first mistake was to meet in a pub in downtown New York. To complicate matters, Bill had arranged to meet a date across town later. Then they meet a young woman. She's articulate and well-read, and the three of them sit down drinking and talking. So instead of debating to be or not to be, Miller and his friend debated the more urgent question of the night. Should they stay with this young woman or go and meet Bill's date? Did they have enough money for the night? And they started discussing the dangers of venereal disease. It was a time to act, writes Miller, but action was precisely what we were incapable of. My friend Dyker was the quintessence of all the hamlets I have ever met. He was incapable of making even the decision to empty his bowels. The only thing to do, writes Miller, since we couldn't come to a decision, was to keep on drinking. So the dithering friends just keep drinking and chatting and doing nothing. Gradually, writes Miller, We came back to Hamlet, very much involved now with the subject of going to bed or not going to bed, the dangers of disease, the money problem, the question of honour, of meeting Bill's friend, and so on and so on. And then he writes a very significant sentence. From this strange bog in which Hamlet became mired, I have never been able to extricate him. A lot of us are like that with Hamlet. His question is so open, so endlessly spacious, that it can accommodate any of your concerns, thoughts, dreams, desires, suppositions, fantasies, anything which might be troubling you or occupying your mind. To be what exactly? To do something? To become something? To be something? The speech seems to sometimes be about living or existing, sometimes about doing, about action... It's a peculiar, wobbling, slippery, ungraspable piece. And it's so welcoming, its syntax is so infinitely accommodating, so full of generous interpretive possibilities, it's like a giant container that can hold anything you wish to throw into it. So it can become mixed up with what Henry Miller calls his strange bog, a bog of mental detritus and semi-conscious desires, a personal bog from which he'd never been able to extricate Hamlet's question. In 1930, Henry Miller moved to Paris to live the life of an impoverished, flamboyant, bohemian with a complicated love life. In 1934, he surprised himself and everyone else by becoming world famous with his novel Tropic of Cancer. It was banned in America for obscenity for 20 years, and Miller remains controversial today. Some argue his work is misogynist, Others argue he's an over-the-top scatological Rabelaisian satirist, deliberately flouting conventions and the Puritans of the day. In 1935, the year after he published Tropic of Cancer, Miller decided to return to the question of Hamlet. By now, he'd come to utterly hate Hamlet and his endless self-questioning. He declared his intention to write a book, composed of hundreds of letters exchanged with a fellow writer called Michael Frankel. His odd ambition was to write and write until the book grew to exactly a thousand pages and then stopped dead, even if it was in mid-sentence. The book was never published, and only a selection came out as The Hamlet Letters in 1988. It's a very obscure book, semi-deranged and great fun to read. Miller complains that Hamlet does nothing but talk the utmost gibberish. He has been standing there like that, talking for centuries. The curtain never falls. The speech is never terminated. Always the same scene, always the same characters, the same gestures, same words. He is the prince of idleness, of futile speculation. Hamlet, Miller cries out in fury, is so firmly lodged in our consciousness that only when our entire Western civilization is wiped out will it disappear possibly recalling his indecisive and constipated friend Bill Diker, Miller writes, Hamlet is in our bowels. He is the very symbol of the modern man's inner bankruptcy. Hamlet symbolises the spirit of the modern age, a disease of the mind. 20 years previously, Hamlet's question had become inextricably mixed up with Miller's private obsessions. But by now it had mutated, supersized, metastasized, coming to symbolise the self-doubt, the cowardice, the spiritual and moral paralysis of the entire world, a world which Miller calls alive-dead, dead-alive. Hamlet's speech, he says, rumbles eternally in our blood and leads us on to a defeat at the hands of life. The whole world, he says, has become Hamlet. So why on earth was Miller so angry? What is it about Hamlet's question that aroused such vitriol, such fury? There are a few possible answers, and I think they're all instructive. First of all, Miller was by no means the first writer of the 20th century to turn on Hamlet. Many writers after the First World War, the modernists as they're called, took iconoclastic potshots at the great literature of the past. It was an attempt to deconstruct it, to knock it off its perch. T.S. Eliot called Hamlet an artistic failure. James Joyce called its central character a deathsman of the soul and claimed the famous soliloquy was, quote, improbable, insignificant, undramatic. D.H. Lawrence seems to be channelling Henry Miller in some of his comments about Hamlet. I had always felt an aversion from Hamlet, A creeping, unclean thing, he seems. His nasty poking and sniffing, his conceited perversion. The character is repulsive in its conception, based on self-dislike and a spirit of disintegration. How boring, how boring to live with, so mean and self-conscious, blowing and snoring his wonderful speeches, full of other folks whoring. This dark strain of Hamlet hatred reached its apotheosis in 1930 with the critic G. Wilson Knight, who recast the prince as entirely the villain of the piece. He called Hamlet, an ambassador of death, a sick soul, a poison in the veins of the community, an element of evil in the state. Inhuman, a creature of another world, centred on death. This reaction against Hamlet was pretty much inevitable, after the almost religious veneration, the bardolatry of the 19th century. To many of the modernists, the play seemed to loom so unaccountably large in the culture that it cast a shadow no new seeds could grow under. It was also a counterpoint to the way that the Romantics had worshipped Hamlet. Devoted fans such as Goethe, who claimed Hamlet possessed a lovely, pure, noble and most moral nature although he lacked the strength of nerve which forms a hero. The writers of the 20th century were keen to redress the balance after such hagiography. Henry Miller also felt he had a pretty honourable reason to despise Hamlet's questioning of life itself. Miller himself lived life to the full. He saw the aim of great art as the affirmation of life, the transfiguring of the individual. As he famously wrote in Tropic of Cancer, I have no money, no resources, no hopes. I am the happiest man alive. By contrast, in his famous soliloquy, Hamlet lists the many burdens, the toils of life, from the ravages of time and the injustices of society to the pangs of love gone wrong, without ever turning the coin over, without a single mention of the many joys, consolations, blessings, the little rewards and epiphanies of life sign, perhaps, of a man in deep depression. Because of this, Miller thought Hamlet was anti-life. Therefore, Miller wrote, to embrace life, we must lay the ghost of Hamlet. But there may be other reasons, too, for the sheer force of Miller's conviction. Why else would somebody spend three years writing a book about a play which he professes to hate? Now, Hamlet himself famously said that a play should hold the mirror up to nature to show virtue her feature, scorn her own image and the very age and body of the time his form and pressure. Whoever watches Hamlet watches a reflection of themselves and the times they live in. So it might help to explain the vehemence of Miller's Hamlet hatred if we remember the form and pressure of the times he was living through. Miller wrote the Hamlet letters between 1935 and 1938 in Paris, as the drumbeats of war grew louder and louder. He was defiantly apolitical, refusing to be engaged at all in politics, utterly contemptuous of politicians. But he did despise the West's inaction against Hitler, their policy of appeasement, of doing nothing to stop the Nazi military machine as it started to swallow up entire countries. By 1938, Miller is writing movingly of the coming conflagration the knowledge that Europe was about to go up in flames once again, his realisation that he would have to flee Paris. As he said after the war, the Hamlet letters were born out of a despair created by the inertia and paralysis around us. In other words, Hamlet was doing what he always does, showing Miller the form and pressure of the times he was living in. In the strange bog of his associative imagination, Hamlet now symbolised the negativity, the hypocrisy, the indecision, the moral cowardice of a society which appeased Nazism. A final point could be made. When people express passionate rejection of a speech like to be or not to be, they may in fact be revealing something about themselves, which they'd rather keep hidden. In 1936, during the period he was writing the Hamlet letters, Miller was contacted by George Orwell. They had a famous encounter in Paris just before Christmas. Orwell was on his way to fight against the fascists in Spain. Their debate that night typified the push and pull of Hamlet's speech, its swing between action against the oppressor's wrong and inaction, between doing and not doing. Orwell afterwards wrote, What most intrigued me about Miller was to find that he felt no interest in the Spanish war, whatever. He merely told me in forcible terms that to go to Spain at that moment was the act of an idiot. My ideas about combating fascism, defending democracy, were all baloney. Miller told Orwell that the war was not his business and he was better off writing. Orwell replied that by doing nothing, he was in fact helping tyranny prosper. It was a fundamental clash between ideas of liberty. Miller arguing for the personal freedom of the artist, Orwell arguing that it was democracy that gave the artist liberty and democracy had to be fought for. Then something interesting happened. Slowly, they stopped arguing. Both men were moved, even semi-persuaded by the articulacy and the conveyed emotions of the other. Orwell later wrote an essay called Inside the Whale, in which he praised Miller for his insulation from the world, his liberty to refuse political engagement, the freedom, he thought, of a true artist. Miller, on the other hand, was touched by Orwell's passion, his earnestness and his humility. And he gave Orwell a corduroy coat to wear on the front lines. While Orwell fought in Spain, Miller continued to sit on the sidelines, writing his vitriolic letters about Shakespeare's play, condemning Hamlet for the very thing he himself was doing. Nothing. It's just possible that somewhere in his strange bog of mental associations, Miller was feeling a little guilty, perhaps experiencing a measure of self-doubt. Perhaps within the inaction of Hamlet, he caught glimpses of himself. Hamlet says that guilty creatures sitting at a play can be struck so to the soul that they presently proclaim their malefactions. Perhaps, like the Queen, Miller was protesting too much. In criticising Hamlet with such vehemence, he may have been in some sense criticising himself. At the end of his life, in 1974, a book of Miller's writings and interviews was published. He was still as life-affirming as ever, Wanting it to go on and on. He wrote, What are we here for if not to enjoy life, solve what problems we can, give light, peace, and joy to our fellow man, and leave this planet a little healthier than when we were born? But the book also suggests that Hamlet's speech is inescapable, or perhaps even that Miller secretly liked it a little bit more than he publicly admitted. He embarks on a meditation on the afterlife on the possibility that consciousness may carry on after death which is one of the themes of hamlet's soliloquy after all he wrote no matter what you touch and you wish to know about you end up in a sea of mystery do we ever die that is the question so curiously in a book published at the end of his life Miller ends up quoting a speech he always professed to hate.